This is Power 102 Digital, the Power Breakfast Show podcast series. neighbors good morning neighbors thank you so much for joining us on the paul breakfast show it is the second hour paul richards ruben and myself richard is m.i.a wendell is looking for richard we send him on a, a task all right uh of course coming up at eight o'clock we have a major well a news brief and that's all courtesy chamfle auto services okay so more dollar folks out at Champlain Auto Services. Alright, uh, before I give you a weather, well, not a weather, a traffic report, let me just give you a time check. Yep. Time check brought to you by Clean and White Bleach. It's exactly 714. You can use clean and white bleach and disinfectant spray for a powerful and safe clean. And Anson McCall Group Company. All right. So thank you so much, clean and white and Anson McCall. Yep. 714. All right. Traffic wise, coming out to Digo Martin. Woo boy. Stick A. That is sticky. Straight from Wendy Fitzwilliam Boulevard on the highway. And then straight up. Digo Martin Main Road. Moncoco Road. It's heavy coming out to Digo. Out of Maraval from Mook all the way down Lower Santa Cruz, out of St. Anne's. And coming down uh, Lady Young Road, you're going to get traffic on Lady Young Road just before the double bends. All right, and going up towards Walkover, you got some traffic. All right. Um, let's head down east. Rainy east. Rainy east. Traffic again. Holy Maloney's. Wow. You're going to get traffic even before the San Grande police station heading straight to Valencia Junction. Wow. If Sean Sobers was down that side, he'd take five hours to get a port of Spain. Uh, Santa Rosa a bit busy from Mouska heading straight to the port of Spain. It is traffic. Chaguanas Main Road to Curep. It is traffic. Uh, St. Helena, Kelly Village, traffic. Wow. Listen. It's just heavy. Riverland Road, heavy. San Fernando, usual routes. East-West Corridor is really tricky. All right, Chaguanas towards Uriah Butler Highway. Hey, you're going to get traffic this morning. Wow, East-West Corridors. As, as I would say, it's stink and dirty. There you go. All right, so our guest is online. 
Senator Sean Sober is online, so let me just say good morning to you. How you doing? Oh, you're on mute. There you go. Morning, morning. How you doing? Long time. Yes, it has been quite some time. It's been quite some time. All right, let's get the results of our morning poll. Of course, this morning we asked you, let me just do a little fresh air to get some more votes. Do you agree with the state's decision to appeal the judge's decision to uphold the multi-million dollar ruling in the Juwala Ramburan wrongful dismissal lawsuit? All right, so far the no's have it online. And the news have it on um, on my pen and paper from our callers and messages, all right? So far, we had um, 20 folks saying no and uh, six folks saying yes, all right? All right, so that's it. Yes, so our guest this morning, Senator Sean Sobers. Welcome to the Power Breakfast. Uh, former um, Senator Sean Sobers. Former Senator. I did. I, I did. I did Sobers, you feel like below, how you? I'm so dark, man. We're really lighting in the room. Things bothered. Paul, Paul. I want to also congratulate. I don't know if it's, it's appropriate at this juncture, but should I also refer to you as Dr. Paul Richards now? You, I saw you, you can. Yeah. But Paul is fine. <laughs> Thank you so much. Dr. Paul Richards, is there something I don't know? Something happened when I was off for a couple of weeks? What happened there, Paul? Oh. People, Steve is generally two weeks behind time. So we yeah, I'm two him. weeks. Dr. Paul Richards, is, is that correct? Yes, yes. I, I saw the article online. Um, Dr. Richards would have completed his doctorate at the university, I believe, in the U.S. Andrews, and, yes. Yes, yeah. Well, well done, Paul Richards. Yeah. These are the later. I'm, I'm, two weeks, I'm two weeks behind time. Right now, right now in the middle of October. Well done, Paul. I don't know if... Most it's of our listeners knew that. I'm Sorry? Going, I'm, I, I don't know if most of our listeners um, knew that. Yes, they did, Steve. They you were the one behind time. Listen, leave me alone. I'll put Sean no, Silvers behind you. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations. Anyway, good morning, Sean Silvers. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. Lots happening in the country. Uh, okay. uh, let, let me start with our question this morning. and Kind of rhetorical question for you. <laughs> our question this morning was, do you agree with the uh, stated intention of the state to appeal the Jawala Ramaran $7.5 million ruling for wrongful dismissal. And what say you? He asked rhetorically. Um, well, it's interesting that you would say it's rhetorical. Uh, being an attorney at law, I do understand that um, any litigant before the court has an opportunity to appeal a decision of the High Court, to appeal a decision of the Magistrates' Court, and even to appeal a decision of the Appellate Court. Um, so it is it is well within the rights of, of, of any litigant, be it the government or anybody else, to adopt that position. Um, my particular position is that, unfortunately, what I've come to understand or come to realize with this particular administration is that they have turned some state agencies into basically litigation mills. So it is easier for them in, in their own um, eyes what does that mean what does that mean what do you mean by that? so um let's say for example embd embd the estate management board um uh entity that entity that was set up to help develop lands throughout the country a lot of the claims that have come to the embd some of the claims which should in fact be settled 
if the settlement should be done over time, periodically, or whatever the case may be, which would save the taxpayers money in the long run, have contractors working um, generate employment. Instead of doing that, what this administration has has done is essentially transform the MBD into a, 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 an entity which basically says no to all claims. We are not paying anybody. We prefer to go to court and we will um we will run up the proverbial legal ladder. But but it's not isn't that Perfect as the as the phrase goes, if there are concerns about the way those contracts were handed out and the deliverables attached to those contracts, shouldn't the state seek the public interest in making sure that the process was proper as opposed to just paying out claims that are brought before the state that they, where there are major concerns identified? And you're right. So that in some of those instances, I do agree with you if there is... Uh, expert reports that indicate that certain works would not have been done. Um, there are engineer reports from the um, the way in which those uh, contract law uh, positions operate through FIDIC. You have the engineer who's the consultant who's really supposed to be the one protecting the state who's the client against bad works or insufficient works being done um, by the contractor. And if it is you have an engineer's report that indicates that works weren't done satisfactorily or no works were done at all, then obviously you don't pay and you, you litigate the matter. But there have been reports coming from engineers. I have been involved in some matters against the MBD where you have the engineers indicating, yes, we've, we've delivered what you call interim payment certificates to these people over a period of time and they've not been paid. So you need to pay them. And there's no reason sometimes when these matters are advanced um, through the courts, sometimes through arbitration, which is like court in and of itself, just without a judge, um, there's an arbitrator, but you follow basically the rules of court. And then if it is you're not satisfied there, after spending millions of dollars on private attorneys, then you go to the high court and you go through the entire same process again. And some of these approaches, and that's why I, I, I answer that question in a particular way, the approach that we've seen with this particular administration is that they, they intend to appeal sometimes on, on, on interim points during a matter. And that stops the, the, the substantial proceedings for some time until, until those interim points are settled. And then you go back to the substantial matter, which costs the taxpayers a lot of time and a lot of money as well too. And so even in my own personal practice, I always advise clients at this juncture where money is scarce, um, try and do what is commercially viable, the most commercially viable um, position to adopt. That is what you should, in fact, be doing. And I don't see the state in, in, in a lot of these matters adopting that particular position. Well, the, the overall issue that has come into the public conversation recently is really uh, part of what you're saying is exorbitant legal costs the state is incurring. Yeah. But that is not exclusive to this administration. That has been the concern through several different administrations and through the Office of the Attorney General, Ministry of Legal Affairs. And now there's a conversation about legal cost, what is applicable, the briefs that are handed out to X, Y, and Z, and is the public getting value for money? Or is it, as you call it, as you termed it, a litigation mill, not only in this administration, but in previous administrations past? So how, how is the, the, the public to reconcile what is political and what is actually beneficial in the public interest? I am, I am, I, you know, sometimes I think God leads us in a particular way. And so whilst I was waiting to log on, I was on my telephone and I saw um, an article 
from um, Senior Counsel Martin Daly, who was speaking about the very same thing that you are addressing currently. Mm -hmm. And he attempted to demonstrate chronologically what used to be the position in times gone by with respect to litigation. I saw that article and going through yes. the state prosecutor's yes. office and Correct. stuff like that. Correct, mm -hmm. yes. And uh, it is in my, my humble opinion that there should be a return to that. Um, that we have so many lawyers coming out from law school. Um, there's going to be a call, I think, next week where we have maybe 100 plus lawyers coming out. And there are so many gaps within the state that these people could be absorbed. And instead of spending millions of dollars on attorneys privately, um, they should be put to work for the state where they are paid a salary and they deal with the matters accordingly. And Martin Daly made the point in that. And aspect. gain capacity and learn also in the process. Correct. And, and there have been excellent, excellent attorneys who've come from the Solicitor General's Department, who've gone on to be judges, senior counsels, um, excellent private attorneys in their own right. And I and I and I and I want to say this as I keep it. I cast no aspersions on any lawyers, both under the previous administration or this particular administration, for the work that some of them are doing. Some of them are eminent senior counsel. Um, and I I I I I I I owe them that that level of respect and deference. But at the same time, I agree with the position articulated by Mr. Daly SC in that we need to look at at how we can bolster and buttress our state um solicitor general's department with all of these young budding lawyers coming out. Um and you know, essentially they'll be thrown in the deep end, but that's the best way sometimes that you're able to learn and grow. Yep, you learned to swim by swimming. Uh, Richard Ragobasing, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, good morning, Paul. Good morning, Sean. Good morning, Mr. Ragobasing. How are you? After running for three minutes, Richard takes over for now. <laughs> I mean, our substantive topic is, of course, the, the issue of uh, the former AG and the issues related to the Vincent Nelson case. Uh, and just for clarity and those who may not be following it in local media, what is the UNC's position? So our position is quite clear. Um, we, from what we have received in terms of information coming to us from the printed press and otherwise, um, you have a situation where you have a state witness, which is not not something abnormal or out of the ordinary, who had who had certain information, um, uh, wherein he indicated basically that you know there were certain wrongdoings occurring in the Attorney General's office, and he was minded to provide that information uh, to the relevant authorities. And our position is the relevant authority under the constitution in this particular case for criminal matters is in fact the DPP. And so, um, Dr. Richards, you would, hear, you would bear me out on this. You were in the Senate when we passed that plea um, mitigation and plea discussion um, bill, which, which is in fact law. And there's no feature of that bill where the attorney general is supposed to be part and parcel of any negotiations or, or plea bargaining discussions at all. And so for the attorney general to have entered into the arena in whatever capacity that we are now becoming aware that he has with respect to this indemnity um, agreement that he forged with, with, with Mr. Nelson, it murkies and muddies the position. And so any jury that becomes aware of that particular position, I mean, persons watch television, they see these things all the time, my persons turn state witnesses against their alleged co-conspirators in an, in an incident. The first question that a defense counsel is going to ask, were you induced to come here to give um, this evidence that you're coming to give against uh, your, your, your former co-accused or your former um, individuals who are charged before the court? 
And once that person admits yes, and then that person goes into what that inducement was, the entire matter is solid. There's no way back from that. And that is going to lead to an acquittal. And the question that has to be asked is why did the, the former attorney general engage in this type of behavior, engage in this type of conduct, overreach as he, as he did, it, which is what our position is, when the law, the constitution is quite clear that it was totally outside of his remit. Yeah. It's a, you know what's a little confusing about that entire issue? Yeah. The what exactly, if there was some sort of plea bargaining or plea arrangement mm -hmm. with the DPP, what was it? Because the only plea bargaining that we are aware of, at least that's being publicized, is the indemnity agreement with the former AG mm -hmm. and what was signed there. But um, was there one with the DPP in exchange for the information with regard to whatever information he was given with regard to the former, a well, a previous AG and mm -hmm. uh, a, a former member of the Senate? Mm -hmm. And so you won't show was there because you're right in that in that in that act, the the remit really is that for the DPP to do. Mm -hmm. And, but what agreement did the DBP have? Or was there any? Well, I am not seized and possessed. And his defense counsel. Yes, I, I am not um, seized and possessed of any facts as it pertains to an arrangement with the DPP. Um, what I can say is from the, the, the sentencing aspect of things, uh, Mr. Nelson will have been fined a tidy sum of $2 million. Now, essentially, for what he was alleging that took place, Mr. Nelson actually um, could have faced a, a, a harsh, extremely harsh custodial sentence. So I don't know if it is in terms of, and I'm saying because I am not seasoned possessor of those facts, I'm suggesting that there's a possibility then that there may have been an arrangement. Well, listen, if you give this information, we will not recommend a custodial sentence. Our recommendation would be, in fact, that you are fined. Um, we would also possibly give a recommendation as to what defined could likely be and let the judge determine that position. That 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 is as far as I think the DPP may have gone. If he if he did in fact go in that direction, I'm not seeing emphasis of those facts. But this position with respect to to paying legal fees and not um not you know it's 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 the indemnity agreement unfortunately is absolutely ridiculous. Um and as I said before, if that was to ever find its way well in front of a jury. Um, that matter would have definitely been dismissed. There would have been an acquittal. Yeah. Yeah, but the that the former AG has indicated in a press conference after a lot of the information came to the public domain that he was advised by senior counsels, yes. Gilbert Peterson and is it Russell Martino? No, Douglas, Douglas Mendez. Douglas Mendez, sorry. Douglas Mendez. Also senior counsel, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And he had and he had leaned on that advice as the attorney general in with regard to the, how to proceed or, or the options to proceed in this matter. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. I I slightly disagree with you a tad bit, Paul, uh, because based upon my recollection, um, what he actually indicated is um, listen, I um I I forwarded the indemnity agreement for um senior counsel to settle. And I made the point at my last press conference when um, lawyers use that term, generally what happens is 
you have a, a, a lawyer, possibly a junior lawyer, possibly what we refer to as a junior senior lawyer, someone maybe 18, 19, 20 years in practice, just without the, the silk title attached to his or her name, they may prepare a document and just out of an abundance of caution, they may forward the document to a more senior person who is more okura with that area of law to settle the document and then forward it back. Now, settling a document doesn't mean that I rubber stamp it or I, I punctuate it and say, yes, it's good to go. I may have some concerns and I would attach those concerns to the document. And then it's for you now to to essentially take my advice or don't take my well, advice. Well, I ask the questions in, in, in that context because at the end of the day, to me, and please, please correct me from because you're all the, the attorneys. Mm -hmm. The attorney general can and should seek advice from persons who may be more knowledgeable in any particular sphere of law. Correct. Yes. But the final decision rests with the office of the attorney general. And that is where the responsibility for the decision should lie, essentially. Definitely. And I agree. And that's why um it 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 started, the genesis of it started totally wrong. This person, for whatever reason, through his attorney, whether or not they're, I mean. Clearly, based upon what we've seen coming out from the press, there existed some type of relationship between um, the man's counsel at the point in time, Mr. Kewalsing, and the attorney general. That's fine. Um, he reached out. He says, listen, this man is willing to say X, Y, and Z. Our position is, as a party, is that at that juncture, essentially, what should have taken place, and it was critical that it took place, he is to say, listen, I, I, I appreciate the fact that this man is minded to come forward, the correct approaches. Let me contact the DPP's office and set up a meeting for you all to go there and arrange to have a discussion there. That is outside of my remit and I will not get involved in it. And whatever um, uh, machinations that Mr. Nelson may have had or to encourage him or entice him to come forward, the DPP at that juncture would have been able to say, um, you would have been poised and in a proper position to say, listen, you know, I'm not minded to give you what you're asking for. That's nonsense. Is either you well, I'm glad you mentioned that because at the end of the day, some are suggesting also that whatever the former attorney general may or may not have arranged or negotiated mm -hmm. is one thing. The DPP's office is an independent office and can say yay or nay to whatever recommendations come from the former attorney general because there was a document in the public domain. Yes. Attributed, attributed to the former AG, which in paraphrase said, I am aware of the boundaries between offices yes. and the independence of your office. However, it is my recommendation, I think was the word used, mm -hmm. that consideration be given to this scenario. Yes. At that point, it is up to the DPP to say yea or nay. The other suggestion added to that is was the DPP then bounded? I suggest not because his office is independent. Yeah. Are any uh, uh, arrangement made outside of that office? Yeah. Or outside of the, the approval of and consent of the DPP's office to make that arrangement given the independence of the DPP's office? Am I going beyond the legal, the law here? No, you are, you are, you are, you are on point. Um, what I would add to that is this. Um, I am aware based upon exactly the same letter that you're referring to, it appears to me that when that letter reached the desk of the DPP, he's basically indicating to the former attorney general, I don't know anything about that, you know. That document and its contents and, and whatever else that is connected to it, you cooked that up on your own and you didn't do so with my input, which is what you should have done. 
And at this late stage where you're now introducing this to me, I am not minded to get my office involved in that and let the chips fall where they may. That's what I took from it. Um, there was another point that I was but going at, to... But at some stage, didn't the office of the DPP have to acquiesce to an arrangement, given the fact that the DPP eventually dropped the charges, so charges were laid? No, I don't think the DPP had to acquiesce at all. Okay, I think, right. I'm, I I'm think asking I, a question. I'm asking yeah, a question. I think, I think the issue became the, how that entire arrangement affected the proceedings with regard to the DPP was the seeming unwillingness as articulated by the defendant that that I am not willing to give information while my this cases that I have against the state for an agreement that I think the state is in breach of, meaning that side of the state, the, the attorney general side. That's how it started to affect the criminal proceedings and at which point the DPP said, well, look, this case is untenable. It's not fair to the defendants in this matter and therefore i am i am i'm discontinuing the case so it started to affect it affected in a kind of proxy way through what victor nelson was articulating to the dpp i'm not willing to give this evidence until this agreement is held up in my favor which can't mm -hmm. be a tenable position for dpp quite frankly in terms of a criminal proceeding no, you know, I asked the question, um, Mr. Raghubasing, uh, to another senior criminal attorney about this, um, because it appeared to me that when the DPP made that submission, I, I got the feeling that, well, obviously he was aware of this position based upon the correspondences sometime in 2020. Um, the decision to drop the matter came in 2022 of this year, so that's two years onwards. And I asked that senior lawyer, why didn't the DPP then possibly indicate to the court what the position was since he became seized and possessed of the facts? What the senior lawyer indicated, well, listen, at the end of the day, that, that issue with respect to, to whatever indemnity agreement that may have been struck without the DPP's knowledge and input really goes to the credibility of the witness. And that is not an issue really and true. It's a concern for the DPP. But it's an issue then that would be dealt with by, by the jurors and by the judge. And so up until that point, even though he may have been away in 2020 about this indemnity agreement, his hands were essentially tied. Listen, if the man is saying he's going to testify at some juncture... But I why would his hands be tied given the independence of his office? He can make a decision to not go forward. No, but then the I... thing is it doesn't affect it. The issue with respect to credibility, in my, in, from what I was told, and in my opinion, practicing criminal law is not an issue that he has to treat with. Okay, that's the court and the jury. Correct, correct. And if the jurors believe the person to be credible or incredible, that's their decision. But where you reached a stage now where the, 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 the man is saying, I'm not minded to testify because of this indemnity breach or alleged breach, then that is a, a serious... So, so are you saying, and I'm asking a question here, that the mere fact that a criminal act is alleged to have taken place, Right? And the DPP is seized and possessed, I like that phrase, of information that may be able to help this case on behalf of the state, that the DPP can move forward and then let the court decide if he finds that the evidence or the potential for evidence meets a particular bar to present the court, the, 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 the case to the courts and, and charges. That what the scenario is here. In my opinion, yes, with respect to credibility. Okay. And that's why, because I asked the question, if he became seasoned possessor of the facts in 2020, 
why not drop the charges then? And what I was told, and I agree, having practiced in, in that arena for a bit, is that at the end of the day, it would, it would go to the credibility of Mr. Nelson's, his statement, him being there based upon him possibly being induced by this indemnity agreement to pay legal fees and other fees and whatever other fees and, and, and whatnot. And so um, it would it would have been disclosed. Um, I think the Honorable um, Director of Public Prosecution would have disclosed the indemnity agreement at some point in time. Um, and if Mr. Nelson decided and, and the agreement was being honored, he would go go forward with the, the testimony. He would have to indicate the full parameters, length and breadth of, of that indemnity agreement. And then the issue of his credibility um, would have been left to the jurors to decide. And in my humble opinion and considered view, they would not believe him. I mean, you know, when you think about it in any, in at least... But indemnity opinion. and persons turning state witness is not a new phenomenon in, in, in jurisprudence. No, it's, so it's, whether it's, or not you think they believe him or not may be immaterial. It, it is that it is up to the prosecution to champion their position and the defense to defend the position. It, 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 it comes down to that in the courtroom. No, but how 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 would you? Um, I know that you are not an attorney, you but but you've been you've been a legislator for for quite some time. How are you as an attorney at law in the prosecution now going to defend essentially that a man has been paid to come here and give evidence? Well, that has been my position the last couple of weeks, but I am not, you know, and I have been challenged by that yes. because of the the scenario that people have who have allegedly committed crimes, have fostered deals for their own benefit to give evidence against the crimes they are admitting to be involved in. And in most yeah, but, but those agreements would have had to be between the DBP and the defense counsel. Correct. And in most instances, is not to say that they would have been given a pass. You know. In this case, Nelson was convicted and he was fined, right? Um, the fact that he escaped a custodial sentence, in, in my opinion, is a good deal. But to say but no, what, what was that, that deal? But that's my point, Sean. What yes. was that deal? Well, I, because as I said, because that not, deal yeah. is not the indemnity agreement. Because correct, the indemnity correct. agreement is not subject um is not subject to the, the, the defense counsel of 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 Vincent Anderson and the DPP coming to an arrangement or some some plea bargain arrangement. So obviously there was one because there was a non-custodial sentence. Yes, yes. But yes. nobody is really training their eyes on, well, what was that agreement about? Because everybody's looking at the, the elephant in the room, which is the indemnity agreement. And and I think it's tethered to what um, Dr. Richards is saying. In most instances, if you have co-accused, um, and even you, um, Mr. Agubasing, being an attorney at law yourself for quite some time, you would also understand that in most instances, there are situations where persons, they turn state witness, the best thing that they may be offered is, is a lighter custodial sentence, or in this case, a, a, a heavy fine um, and, and a non-custodial sentence. But in terms of being paid, and, if, yeah. and being paid a tidy sum, some $11 million before um, for fees that was owed and all set of bacchanal that, that, that came out, that is in the, in the media mm -hmm. and what's not printed press. That is untenable. And well, I those, those, those are the scenarios that are coming out now to me yeah. that seem that give you a visceral reaction that what the hell is going on here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this person has confessed and been charged, sorry, confessed, been charged yeah. and convicted yes. of a very serious crime. Yes. 
Yes. And, and to me, that is the that is part of what I find a little irksome in this. And I'm using that term very lightly. The, the UNC, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is also calling on the present attorney general to clarify this situation. I think he may have stated that some of it is before the court and it was sub judice. Uh, uh, I don't know what the scenario is with that because a lot of so much of it is already public domain, but that doesn't uh, mean that some of it is still before the courts. Right, but then um, uh, MP Rambley did an excellent job yesterday at our press conference clarifying legally what the position of subjudice is. And um, it is also connected to the Nankisun Bujram case, which the former Attorney General raised. Subjudice and undue, undue um, public influence with respect to information coming out while some matters before a criminal court can in fact in some instances sway the minds of the jurors and remember judges are not are not machines it could in fact have an an, um, an alternative um uh, opinion or a negative opinion on the way in which a judge may deal with a matter but this is not a matter that is before any criminal court anymore and so to say that it is subjudice because there may be what there, there, there's no appeal the person who can appeal that decision the only person who could appeal the decision really right now is the dpp and he's not going to because he's the one who made the decision to discontinue and so in our opinion the attorney general is using this term of subjudice which is at, which is something that is connected to the parliament now in terms of our standing orders and which is a rule that is connected to criminal proceedings he's carte blanchly saying hey i'm not going to speak about this because it's before the court what is before the court is a civil matter that Nelson has brought. And, and no one is speaking about the merits of the case. What we are asking the Attorney General to say is let us know what the position is with this indemnity situation and how this thing was procured and, and the genesis of it. And, and, and that is why we are saying additionally, if persons intend to remain tight-lipped on this thing, um, it is essential and critical for the TTPS to get involved and for some investigation to take place. As far as I am aware, as also... Um, when the, the DPP became aware of this indemnity arrangement in an, in an attempt, what I, 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 in my considered opinion and humble opinion, in an attempt to get um, a better understanding of the situation, he said the police asked some questions to, to the, 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 the former attorney general. And that's why one of the questions that he, um, the police asked the AG, whether it be by um, email or in person or however it was, who else knew about this indemnity agreement? Who else did you discuss this with? And in one of the questions, he answered, well, he discussed it with the Honorable Prime Minister, the current Attorney General, um, the Minister of National Security, Stuart Young, and others. And so um, I'm saying we cannot remain, um, the government cannot remain silent on this issue. It is one of, of national and public importance. Um, and we need some answers from those persons involved, the people in authority, and if they are not minded to do so, the TTPS needs to get involved and procure those answers for the country. The, the TTPS you getting, so, so you, so you, the TTPS is getting involved because you think a law may have been broken. I believe that a law may have been broken. What I law is that? that may have been broken. Well, I mean, they, we, 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 we are of the opinion that there's, there have been possibly several laws. We are thinking misbehavior in public office, perverting the course of justice. These are possible crimes that may have been committed if persons didn't carefully do what they were supposed to do. I mean, clearly, in, in overreaching in terms of what your, 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 your constitutional remit allows you to do, 
um, by engaging a, 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 a defend, a, a, an initial defendant and then a witness in a criminal proceedings when you should not have, and the DPP was the one to do so, there's something wrong with that. Whether or not it is in fact criminal and it meets the, the, the elements of the offenses that I've just called, that is a position for the police to investigate. And if they find that it meets a standard, then the DPP will advise them whether or not charges should be laid. But at the very least, an investigation should be conducted. If persons are, are innocent and found not to have committed a criminal offense, then let the chips fall where they may. And if it is in fact otherwise, the independent um, office of the DPP and the police, of which we have full confidence in, um, they will indicate otherwise as well too. It's a lot are you going to take some calls? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, I, I, yeah. I am. I am. All right. Our guest is uh, Sean Sobers, former uh, United National Congress senator. And we're talking about several of the legal issues in the public domain presently. And the numbers are, Steve, you know, I never remember them. I know. 222-8255. Toll free, North Americans, 866-525-1099. That's our numbers directly in the studio. We're taking some of your calls. Sean, going back to that that article that Martin Daly wrote, and and the others who have written about it, I see Noble Philip has also written an article that appeared on my timeline this morning about the and this is not pertaining to this administration, the last one generally, the issue of the Attorney General's office and how it operates in terms of review. Do you think that should be reviewed? Absolutely. Um... I, I mean, growing up as a young um, young man within this country, um, I never really knew that lawyers would make these tidy sums of monies from the state. I thought it would have been based upon your reputation, the good works that you would do in the court privately, um, some lawyers practicing up the islands and, and um, at the Privy Council and whatnot. Um, as I said before, I think we have a lot of attorneys, young attorneys coming out from Hewooding and, and elsewhere. And I think it is important that we absorb them into the state um, and that they start doing the practice on behalf of the state, learning um, the, the different... Um, but in addition to that, the way... And, and any attorney general, to me, has the responsibility of making sure that the opinions they get are credible, and proper and impartial, quite frankly, regarding matters that they need opinions on on behalf of the state. But the yes. way even those opinions are procured, it seems that there are issues where the system is open to possible abuse. Let me just leave because, it Because, Paul, the, the issue of politics comes into the office because it's a political appointment. <laughs> So the navigating of the, the 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 road, so to speak, of operating in an independence and an objective manner always comes into question. No what, no matter what the whom the administration is, whether it's the UNC or the People's National Movement, that issue of the politics attached to that position always affects performance. And, and it's a bit unfortunate because, um, to be fair, with respect to both administrations, there are some senior counsels who get work from both sides because their reputation well precedes them. Douglas Mendes has, has, has been briefed by the UNC, has been briefed by the PNM, 
um, Russell Martino Senior Council, same thing. Um, Deborah Peak Senior Council, same thing. Um, so, you know, I do agree with Mr. Agubar saying that, unfortunately, sometimes the politics will play a hand in um, which attorneys are procured as opposed to others. And um, they have been called by some persons well, saying, well, listen, well, why, why, why lawyers don't tender the same way that you have contractors and others tendering? But legal advice is something I think a bit more tricky than just tendering to do earthworks and, and, and whatnot um, and construction. And uh, um, sometimes I think the attorneys general, whoever they may be, they've developed relationships over time with some lawyers who they think to be extremely good in a particular area of law. Um, those lawyers have um, impeccable success rates. No one would disagree with the fact that Douglas Mendes is an excellent attorney. Um, Deborah Peake is an excellent attorney. Um, Kelvin Ramke soon. Um, you know, we have so many attorneys on, who are UNC affiliated as well, too, um, who are excellent lawyers as well. And so that, I mean, um, I remember when I got called, I asked my senior at the point in time, um, well, you know, what would be the, blue, the blueprint that I should follow? And he said, listen, all you need to study is at how quickly um, you could work hard to get at the top because there are so many lawyers within the country who settle at the base. But there are so few of us that, that, that rise to the top. And it takes time. It takes a lot of hard work. It takes... But, but even with that, said, Sean, and I'm not dismissing anybody's credibility, what, what often happens is that there are some attorneys who become politically affiliated. Yes. Whether subliminally, or overtly, or covertly. And when, when this creeps into the scenario, questions obviously arise as to, and this, this doesn't negate their credibility, mm -hmm. but to the closeness to the office holder and whether or not that is playing a part in them getting briefs or not. Yes, yeah. And and to me, that is one of the big questions. This is this is not to do with the credibility or not, you know. Mm -hmm. This has now to do with a political component seeping into the equation. But then, how do you treat with that? If if I, a, I don't know. Well, this is so. This is saying if a if a particular lawyer is well versed in a in an area of law, and that is the area of law, um, for whatever reason, is engaging the state's attention mostly, especially in public law matters where there is a an urgency to treat with the issue because it's a public law issue. You can't have it lingering on 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 the on the books for quite some time. It has to be dealt with. It could change the the landscape in which things are done. And there are very few lawyers within the country who are eminent public law attorneys. You would find often than not their names are the ones that are called most of the time defending the state. Um, if they do in fact have a relationship with the current attorney general or former attorney general, I mean. You know, we live in a small island, a small that's, country. That's just how yeah. it is sometimes. Yeah. Especially practitioners in a particular field will know Correct. each other. Yeah. Correct. Well, gentlemen, we do have a call, so let's grab it. Good morning, caller. Hi, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, yes, there's. I'm uh, hoping that Mr. Sober will clarify something for me because I'm listening to the conversation. Um, the UNC's position is about the indemnity oh, that has been widely debated in the public, right? However, I assume that I haven't heard anything about their position in terms of officers who occupied office that would charge and allegations made against him. I'd like to hear his position on that in terms of the accusations made against the 
two class members of UNC because there were bank transactions that were the, that were provided information provided via the public too. Right? What is their the party's position in terms of membership or any individuals that hold in public office? If there are, are serious allegations and they charge, and especially the issue with Mr. Lee, if it is that you feel that the same uh, position should be taken on Mr. Lee as was taken against Mr. Franklin Khan and Mr. Um, Mr. Eric Williams when they stepped down. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Right. Well, the party's position is, is quite clear on that. Um, we essentially have said, listen, if you are in fact charged, you need to go before the court and clear your name. Um, in the case of uh, the former senator, um, Gerald Ramlin, he would have tendered his resignation and he went before the court. The matter has been dismissed. Um, in the case of uh, former Attorney General, well, he was charged subsequent to, to the UNC demitting office. As it pertains to MP Lee, the situation is a tad bit different in that he's an elected member of parliament. Um, I guess the same applies when Mrs. Marlene MacDonald was charged as well. She's an, an elected member of parliament. At the end of the day, um, our constitution allows and it prescribes actually that persons are essentially innocent until they are proven guilty subsequent to going through the, the, the court's procedures. Um, having practice in the criminal arena, and, and I'm not saying that this is the position because I'm not going to speak on the merits of any of the cases. Um, uh, what we have in fact seen, what I have in fact seen, there are many persons who are in fact charged and when you when you when you traverse the case, when the case is properly ventilated before the court, you recognize that there are several gaps between the evidence. There are several gaps between making of the elements of the offense. And within two or three hearings of the matter, sometimes the matters are dismissed. Sometimes as soon as the matter is set for trial, certain um, witnesses don't come because of whatever reasons the witnesses come. They are cross-examined. They are they are found to be um, discredited by defense counsel and the, the, the defendants before the courts are acquitted. So I, I don't think the position is, is that we are going to attach guilt automatically to someone who has been charged. That is not the position for anyone before the courts of law. And that is why in terms of our position with respect to bail amendment and all of those things that would traverse the parliament, our position is that essentially that a person has a right to go before the court, have their matter properly ventilated, and let the chips fall where they may, subsequent to due process, which is what the Constitution provides for us to do. We've never waned or changed our position from that. What about those who suggest that, well, while it's, it's a legally binding position, mm -hmm. uh, at the, for, for a person to be charged, a particular benchmark has to be met, person still innocent until proven guilty yeah. so the opposite of the dpp and that is maybe serious you have to consider the person withdrawing until their name is cleared um as i said before i think with an elected official it's a bit more complicated than that because then what you would essentially have is a by-election taking place and whatnot um i <laughs> i i mean i declare my 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 position i um a personal friend of Dr. Lee, apart from us being a party, um, I um, would have tendered some advice on the matter, so I can't get into it um, uh, uh, definitely at this stage. Um, I have a particular position based upon the advice that I would have given in the matter. 
You're involved, so you can't comment. Well, not not involved in terms of representation, right? Yeah, but you're involved at some level. <laughs> um, and I am I am hopeful, and I would go more than saying hopeful. I'm I'm very confident that at the end of the day, when this matter is ventilated, that he would in fact be acquitted. Um, but we will wait and and, and let the, the, them have their day in court. That's my position. Sean Silvers, thanks for being with us. Appreciate your time. Been a while. Yeah. So so much, um, long time. Having the opportunity um, for, for, for having me on. Thank you, Mr. Raghubar Singh. Thank you, Dr. Judds and Mr. Khan as well, too. He's so much very well. You've worked, I mean, I don't think people understand how difficult a thesis is. Um, to they have no idea. <laughs> Correct, right? This, so is, when this is the result of the thesis, like great beer. <laughs> so <laughs> when you yeah. it, you deserve to be called it. That's well, why. That, it doesn't matter to me. Is the, is the information and the knowledge that's important to me? The title is still Paul. But thank yeah. you so much. No problem. Then, okay. All right. Thank you so much, Sean. All the best to you. Paul Richards being gracious and polite and humble. It's raining, so. It's like an auspicious moment. <laughs> well, stay with for your auspicious moment, the Ragabasi. Have a great day, Sean. Thanks a lot. Recording stop. All right. All right, gentlemen, we got to pause. We got to get into our news brief, and it's all courtesy. Champlain Auto Services. Thank you for choosing Power 102 Digital. Listen every weekday for our live show starting at 6 a.m. Remember, like, share, and subscribe. Power 102 Digital.